from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. Take your Bibles and turn to John 17 this morning. And as you turn there, John 17 is Jesus' last words to his disciples, and it is in the form of a prayer. Beginning in chapter 18 and the end, Jesus does make some comments, but there's no more teaching that occurs. And so this is his last opportunity before trial, the crucifixion, resurrection, to impart some more truth into their lives. So these are his last words. And last words are kind of interesting, are they not? You can go and you can Google famous last words. And, and I did that, and I read several of them, and some of them I, I, I found really funny. Uh, for instance, there, there's this one from a playwright, Wilson Meisner. I, I've never heard of him. I meant to ask Alana if she knew who he was. Uh, how many of y'all know who, what the Brown Derby is in California, that famous restaurant? Somehow he was like co-owner. That, I, I understood him more from that aspect than any play that, I, that he wrote. Supposedly on his deathbed, uh, a priest came to visit him, and, and I, I guess the reason I, I laughed is I could see me doing this, and the priest said to him, I guess you want to talk to me now, to which he responded, why? I've been talking to your boss, and <clears throat> I just, I, I found that funny. Groucho Marx, you know, always good with words, you know, this is no way to live, <laughs> You know, Churchill is supposedly have said, I'm bored with it all. And, and the reason I put supposedly in there, I, I find those last word stories to be suspect, right? I, I guess the only ones that you know really and truly would be last words if, if for some reason you have been handed down a death sentence and you know that you're going there. And so, hey, I want these to be my last words. And that's actually where we find Jesus in John 17. We, we know what is coming. I mean, as we go through the Gospel of John, we've been tracking along. We, can't, we try not to get ahead of the story, but we do know where the story is going. We do know that Jesus is going to the cross, that the crucifixion is just hours away. So we know these are his last words. And in his last words to them, he prays for them. He prays for them. He doesn't teach them one more bit of theology. Now, in the prayer, there is theology. But he doesn't pull them aside and say, I want to teach you one more thing. He prays for them because it reveals his heart that he has for his disciples. What they're going to face. What they need to understand. So we're going to read John 17. And this morning, I know we've been reading it all, but we're just going to read from verse 6 to 19 this morning, because if I start coughing, we've got to throw in the towel, so uh, we'll see how far we can get. This is Jesus praying. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not, no one, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. As we're tracking through this prayer, and we come specifically to verse 9 this morning, verse 9 immediately puts us in a contrast. Did, did you see the contrast? I mean, it's it, it stated really clearly. Jesus says, I am praying for them. And then he makes the contrast when he says, I am not praying for the world. As we start this morning and go through why he is praying for his disciples and what he prays for them, we need to address that really quickly. Because for Jesus to say, I am not praying for the, for the world, does that sound harsh to anybody? I mean, it, 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 I see a few head nods. That's good. Because to me, I read it and Jesus is like, I am not praying for the world. And you go, and I, I can hear some of you arguing with me already mentally, but, but Gary, we're, we're supposed to pray for the world. We're, we're, we're supposed to do that. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? When Jesus says this, does this mean that the world is, is beyond God's love? And, and the answer, obviously, is, is no. John's gospel has made that clear, has it not? If there was one verse in John's gospel that I would pick to demonstrate that, that the world is not beyond God's love. Anybody want to randomly guess which Bible verse in John I would pick? 3.16. Absolutely. I mean, right? The one that, that we have memorized. God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Memorize it in King James. Cannot memorize it in anything else. All right? But we know that. We know verse 17 that follows that Jesus was sent so that they might be saved, that the world might be saved through him and, and not condemned. So Jesus' mission then, that we've talked about throughout the Gospel of John, is sent to bring redemption to all in the world who would believe in him. So why then, if that is his mission, why right here does it make it clear that Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world? Well, it goes back to our understanding of what John has taught us about the world. In the Gospel of John, who is the world? Right? We, we've been defining the world. And the world is always defined as, as those who are in opposition to God's plan. They're, they're hostile towards it. They're going to continue to be hostile to it. So in the understanding of John's gospel and who the world is in John's gospel, for Jesus to pray for the world then would be to pray that the world continues to be the world. 
Tell me if this prayer sounds like something Jesus would pray, where he would pray, hey, 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 God, I'm just praying for the world that they would continue to be in opposition to you. I'm praying that, that they would have the strength that they need so that when they get up tomorrow that they can just go world. They can just, you know, be the world in opposition and, and in their sin. Give them. Jesus can't pray that. That, that would be blasphemy. So Jesus cannot pray for the world here in the context of John. Now, at the end of Luke, he does pray for the world. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. But in John's gospel, he can't make that prayer right now. And right here with the disciples, he is setting the disciples apart to go and be on mission. Look down in verse 19 for just a minute where it says, excuse me, verse 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. In just a few, a few short hours, the disciples are being sent into the world after the crucifixion, after uh, his, his burial. He, they're going into a hostile environment. They're going to carry on the mission. And so they need to be prayed for. They need to understand what they're facing. They need to hear Jesus' heart for them and what he is praying for them. Because the one thing that they know and the one thing that we know is, and I know it sounds silly to say this, the world is going to world, right? The, the world doesn't need any help in being the world. The disciples need help and strength in being the disciples. We need help and strength in being disciples. Because we're facing a hostile environment. The world doesn't like us. When somebody doesn't like you, you need to be prepared to be able to withstand that. And so the disciples then are going to be on the receiving end of Jesus' prayer. As they go out into the hostile world to complete or to continue the mission that Jesus was sent on. So he prays for them. And he makes four specific prayers. And as we recognize the prayers that he prays for them, we, we have the same mission. right? And therefore, we have the same needs that the disciples did. So what does Jesus pray? Well, first, he prays that the disciples are to be unified. Jesus wants the disciples to be unified. Again, he prays for unity. How many times has he prayed for unity now? keeps coming back to this. And it's the first prayer, right? This is where he starts. That they may be one. And as he has done every single time, when you look down in that, he bases the unity that they have based on the unity that he has with the Father. That they may be one, in verse 11, even as we are one. The unity of the Father and the Son. Keep them as one. That they will remain as one. You, you know what's fascinating about that? It's not that they will become one. Jesus doesn't pray that they become one. He says that they remain to be one. They are already have that unity. Where is that unity? It is in Jesus Christ. He says they are one. 
Now, as you go into the world, continue to be one. And he prays this because his departure is so imminent that he speaks to it in present tense. Look, he says, I am no longer in the world. Now, I imagine some of the disciples looking at Jesus and going, but you're right there. You're still in the world. Yes. At the same time, there is no turning back from the cross. The cross is going to happen. So Jesus says, look, I'm not in the world any longer. And so when I leave, I want you to be unified. To be one. Because what happens when a leader leaves and leaves the people behind? Right. Y'all know Alexander the Great, right? He, he conquered what would probably be denoted the known world at the time, okay? I mean, incredible general, young, led his armies, I mean, all the way possibly to India and beyond. I mean, all of what you would look at kind of the near and, and mid-east there. He conquers it. And as he goes and he conquers the world, he does it because he has Four incredibly loyal generals, right? And one is named Ptolemy, Cassander, Antigonus, and Seleucus. And they follow him. Wherever Alexander goes, they follow him in the battle. They are one as they follow Alexander. They're unified. They want to take over the world. Alexander's mission is their mission. Until all of a sudden, Alexander dies unexpectedly. And that unity that they had ceases to be. And they go to war against each other. They go to war against Alexander's household, battling now to see who will be the one. Unity is is, is gone. I want to rule the world. No, I want to rule the world. And so many times, that's what happens. You have a strong leader, and when the leader is gone, the followers, instead of continuing on as one, start to battle one another to see who would be the best. And we've already seen this with the disciples, have we not? John, James, what are y'all talking about? Nothing. No, no, really, what are you talking about? It's a small thing, but when you go into your kingdom, can I sit on your right hand and the other sit on your left? (laughs) Jockeying for position. Surely after Jesus is gone, one of them wouldn't say, I mean, they wouldn't get around and hold on and say, well, I think we need to do this. No, no, we need to do this. Well, who's going to do this? Well, I'm going to do this. Who's with me? All right. You think any of Alexander's generals looked at the army and go, I'm going this way, who's with me? Jesus doesn't want that to happen with his disciples. Because it imperils the mission. If if not just flat out ending the mission. Because they're going into the mission field. And the mission field is not morally neutral. It is actively hostile towards the gospel. It's actively hostile towards Jesus Christ. And if they want to be successful in their mission, they must be one. 
if we want to be successful in our mission, we must be one because even we may not realize that, but the fact that we are one in that unity in and of itself is a victory. If we have a unity of heart and mind and a unity of will to be on mission for, for Christ, that in and of itself is a victory. Because it says we can set everything that may make us different aside and we can unify and be one on what God has called us to be one on. And if we are one in mind and heart and mission, then that's going to be something that Satan wants to attack. He's going to want to tear down, to break that unity, to fracture the body. Or in other words, make the body look like the world. Right? If, if the body looks like the world, the world has, has won. So Jesus says, I pray that you will remain one just as, as the Father and I am one. And he says, I do this in, in, in God's name and, and revealed in God's name who I am. So Jesus' name, then, we understand, keeps us and unifies us as one. It is the name of Christ that unifies us here this morning. We are one and the bonds of love. We are one in Christ. And we need to make sure that we remain one. Because by remaining one and, and doing what we're called to do, and one in mind, one in will, one, one in love, we are a formidable force for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, I want my disciples to be unified. But then Jesus says, I want my disciples to be distinct. He wants his disciples to be distinct. One of the biggest paradoxes about believers is we are in the world, but not of the world. You go down through here, and Jesus says it so many times. Verse 11, they're in the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world. Verse 15, Jesus prays specifically, you know, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. We live in the world. This, it, this is where we live. But what does it mean to be of the world, right? When Jesus says you're not of the world, what, what does it mean? What does the opposite mean? What would it mean if we were of the world? Well, it would mean to pursue sin and self with reckless abandon. That, that, that's what the world pursues, right? Sunday school. Debbie made mention about everybody's talking about me, 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 me. And, and, and that's what the world is right now. Because when we make everything about me, and essentially that's what sin is, it becomes incredibly, incredibly selfish. Right? You're saying to God, I, I know what's better than, than, than you. Because I know this, this is me. I want this. When we get so selfish and saying, this is, this is what I want. What I want then trumps the impact that it may have on anybody around us. I don't care what happens if I go do this. I want it. And when you operate under the attitude of me, you are in, in opposition to God. Now, I know people don't think that. 
And we keep talking about this hostility towards God, and people, I know that you would probably ask a lot of people, you could probably ask a lot of unbelievers, are you hostile towards God? No, I'm not hostile, I'm just indifferent. No, you're hostile. Because there is no indifference. Is a Carolina fan indifferent to Duke? Is a Duke fan indifferent to Carolina? No, they're hostile. Amen. Y'all know this. But the world seems to think that they can live in, in, in a place where they are just morally neutral towards God. But they're not. And that's what the world looks like. When you start, when you start looking at sins that people engage in, start going and, and, and just, just look and notice and, and notice how selfish it is. Well, that's what the world, the world looks like 8 billion selfish people only concerned with themselves. And in this world, God says, my people are to be distinct from the world. We have to operate underneath a different attitude. Because even though we live in the world, we've got to go buy groceries. We gotta pay bills. We gotta do stuff that the world does. But we're not of the world in that we're selfishly pursuing sin and opposition and rebellion to God at all costs. We've got to be distinct. And in writing this, it made me think of something I said years ago that I want to update and amend. I think several years ago in sermons I said that believers should be known more for what we are for than rather than what we are against. I need to update that and amend that. The world has gone so insane. We need to know what we're, people need to know what we're against. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it really does. It's getting to the point where believers need to know we, we don't stand for that because if we don't stand for the things that the world are standing for, that automatically makes us distinct. And so it's become a combination, right? We, we stand for life and against abortion and euthanasia. We stand for God-ordained marriage and against any other definition of marriage. We stand for sexual purity and against all other types of sexual immorality. We stand for the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and against all other roads lead to heaven. We stand for ministering to those who are in need instead of exploiting those who are in need. We are distinct. And if you hold to those truths, you will be distinct as well. And we are called to be distinct, and we are left in the world because we become the hope of the world. Right? Now, we know that the hope of the world is Jesus Christ. But Jesus is going to use us. Verse 19 again. As I have been sent, I am sending you. We go with the hope of Jesus Christ. That, that's our mission. That's why Jesus says we are the light of the world. Right? To provide light in darkness. While we are the salt of the world, to preserve the world and keep it from decaying. Ambassadors for Christ, meaning that we speak the gospel to those around us. We're to be distinct. How distinct are you? 
I mean, from your actions. I mean, I know we don't have the t-shirts. I, I guess you could buy a t-shirt. I'm a Christian, but typically you don't get one. But through your actions, through your words, are you distinct? Does the world look at you and go, and, and I think some translations uh, call us a peculiar people. Right? And y'all have used that about people. The scribes going to say, well, they're kind of peculiar. We know what that, we're Southern. We know what that means. But as believers, we're supposed to be like that. We'll describe that. Well, he's kind of peculiar. How so? He's a, he's a Christian. He's a believer. We're to be distinct. That's why we are in the world. Because the message we proclaim is a distinct message. And if we're separate and distinct from the world, then when we proclaim the message of the gospel, it resounds with all its power. Yet if you look like the world and try to share the gospel, it has no power. I know what you say, but I also know how you live. There you go with how you live every time. So Jesus prays that we may be distinct, distinct in thought, distinct in mind, distinct in action, distinct in how we use our talents. Distinct just by being here on a Sunday morning, you are being distinct from the world. Be a peculiar people for God. Then Jesus prays that his disciples to be protected in verse 15. He says, again, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And when he prays that, we automatically know that he is praying about Satan. Keep them from Satan. I mean, after all, they've seen the power of Satan, have they not? In their midst. Jesus even draws our attention to this, does he not? Where he says, I've lost none. In verse 12, it said, For the son of destruction, that Scripture might be fulfilled, talking specifically about Judas. John has made it clear throughout his gospel who Judas is. We know Judas' character. He's a thief. He's a liar. He's called a devil. He's even a vessel of, of, of Satan. And so in verse 12, there's kind of a play on words. It says the perishing one is perishing, talking about Judas. And you look at his story, and what we understand is that the best way to characterize Judas is, is by lostness. Not his destiny, but by his character, who he was. He walked beside Jesus. He listened to Jesus, yet he did, he did not believe, and he acted freely in those decisions to, to steal and betray Jesus. But in the glory of God, it says, you know, even in that... God is powerful enough to use man's evil actions to fulfill his plan. So Jesus knows that Satan is out there. Satan is real. The disciples should know it, right? You remember, remember Peter? What does Jesus call Peter? When Peter looks at Jesus, remember the story. Who am I, Peter? You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Good, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It came to me by my Father. You know, Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Peter looks at Jesus and says, basically, God forbid that you go to the cross. Jesus looks at Peter and says what? Get behind me, Satan. He looks at Peter and says, Peter, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. 
Is it no wonder that later on that Peter writes that Satan is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? Just looking, hoping, praying, looking for for the weakest link. And I love that analogy. I I love that illustration of a roaring lion. Because every time I think about a roaring lion, I always go back and think, before it was a roaring lion, it was a little bitty cute lion cub. Right? Who wouldn't want a little bitty cute lion cub? Y'all seen those things? Seen those National Geographic videos of lion cubs playing? Would that not just be cool? I mean, honestly, it it looks, they're so cute. And it's like, oh, I'll just play with a little lion. (laughs) Until a little lion grows up to be a big lion, and the big lion eats you. (laughs) Right? But that's, that's what Satan is looking to do. Satan isn't looking just to come into our lives and be a cute little lion club and, 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 and dangle some sin in front of us and we just kind of play footsies with a little bit of cute sin. He brings it into our lives so that we will be devoured by it. So it will eat us. And I always, this, this is again one of those things where I, I think as, as believers we kind of live in two worlds or, or two, have to hold two trains of thoughts. There's the one train of thought where Satan is a roaring lion. He is active, he is looking, he is coming to devour us, right? We, we, we fight, we're told in Ephesians, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities. Right? We, we, we fight against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So we are engaged in a spiritual battle with Satan as the head, with Satan the roaring lion coming into battle and his minions behind him, right? And he's looking for people to devour. And so that, that's one truth that we hold. Then there's the other truth that we see, the shiny lure of sin that James talks about. And we're like, man, I want that. And, and, and we just reach out and grab it. I kind of feel like in those cases sometimes Satan's over there going, hey, look, I'm responsible for a lot, but that one you did on your own. We need protection from this. We need protection from Satan, and sometimes we need protection from ourselves, because I don't know about you, but sometimes we're stupid. I mean, maybe y'all aren't, but every now and then I'm, I'm stupid. We think, oh, well, nobody will find out. It's not that bad. I can get away with it. I mean, right, all these things that go through our mind. You know what you need to say after something like that goes through your mind? Being stupid. (laughs) Because we are. So we need protection. Because if, if, if we succumb to the pressure of the world, if we end up looking like the world, if we end up giving into sin, then the, that, the ministry that we have is, 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 I don't want to say it's forever tainted, but it's, it's pretty close to being forever tainted. I, I don't know of myself personally any friends, pastors of mine, who have fallen into sin, who have been devoured by Satan, who have been restored to ministry. I can't look at them the same way. I can't listen to them the same way. You know why? Because there's always that little, little, little bitty doubt, right? That goes, well, if that's what you believed, then you wouldn't have done. 
That's why we need protection. That's why Jesus prays for us. That's why at times, and as standing from this pulpit, when things like that have happened to me, and I've looked at you, and I've, I've, I've said this to y'all, and I've meant it seriously, and I, every time I say it, some of y'all laugh, and I was like, you know, hey, pray for me. Pray what? It's like, pray that I'm not stupid. Because we need protection. We need protection from the world that hates us. We need protection from Satan who hates us. We need protection from our own stupid thoughts at times. So here's a good question for you. If Jesus takes time to pray this, how about you? I mean, is, is this on anybody's prayer list? Jesus, protect me from the evil one. I'm going to be honest, it's not on my prayer list. But if Jesus takes time to pray for that, then maybe it should be a concern for us as well. Because maybe if we pray for protection from the evil one, we'd be able to see the sin coming. Instead of seeing that nice shiny lure dangle in front of us and reaching out and grab it, we just let it keep on going. So Jesus wants his disciples to be protected. But then finally, Jesus wants his disciples to be sanctified. He says down in verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then again in verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. To be sanctified means to be set apart. And you go, well, didn't you just talk about that with being distinct? Not really. This is different. This means set apart for a purpose. Set apart to be a pur- for a purpose. And we're set apart based on the holiness of God. Because that's, that's, that's one of the ways we use sanctify, talking about being holy. Look at when Jesus says, Holy Father, uh, in, in verse 11. That's an interesting combination, reminding the disciples of the holiness of God, but at the same time reminding them that He is our Father. But God is the only one that is holy. He is just different. His, his nature, His transcendence, His power, His, his, his otherness. He is different. He is set apart. And we are called to be set apart as well. And we are, sanct- we are set apart. Look at how it says in verse 17. Sanctify them, set them apart in the truth, and your word is truth. I find it interesting that it does not say your word is true. It says your word is truth. Small but important distinction. Truth means there is an objective standard. Right? Truth means that there is an objective standard. And it doesn't matter what my take on it is. The objective standard remains the truth. I always use gravity. Because we all know it. I can say gravity is not true. I can claim it's not true. It doesn't exist until I fall off a ladder. And then I discover that gravity is truth. Can't change it. God's Word is the objective standard. This is the measurement by which everything that we call true is measured by. This is what sets us apart. This is what makes us different. This is what makes us 
holy. They're talking about, again, in, in Sunday school this morning. With Romans 12 being transformed instead of conformed. How, how are we transformed? How are we sanctified? How are we set apart? We are set apart by God's Word. And what we need to realize is we're set apart to be used. James puts it this way. Be doers of the word, not only hearers. We're set apart for use. You go to the Old Testament and and you read about all the items in the Old Testament in the temple that were set apart, that were sanctified, that were holy. Right? You got the, the altar of incense. You got the basin. You got the table of showbread. You know what else you had? You had shovels. You had sanctified shovels in the Old Testament. Did you know that? And they were set apart for a specific job. Their specific job was that they were used to clear off the ashes after the sacrifice. Now, it's a shovel, right? You know what you could do with that shovel? You could take it home and dig a hole with it because a shovel will dig a hole, correct? But do you know what you absolutely could not do with that sanctified shovel from the temple? You could not take it home and dig a hole with it. It was separate and different from the common. It was sanctified and set apart for a specific job, for a specific mission, and it could not be used for anything else. This morning, as a believer in Christ, you are sanctified and set apart for mission. You're not set apart just to hear. We're set apart to do. And the do part is easy. What are we to do? Verse 19, as you've sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Why did Jesus come into the world? To preach the gospel, to bring redemption. What are we sent to do? What is our mission? What are we sanctified to do? Tell other people about Christ. We have that mission. Now, we can talk how to fulfill that mission. That's a topic of conversation and a lot of different ideas. But we're set apart to be used. How are you being used for the kingdom? Are you being used for the kingdom? Jesus says, look, I'm setting them apart. And look at how he connects it in verse 19. He says, for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified. That word consecrate is really the same word for sanctified. I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified. What, how is Jesus sanctified? What is John talking about? The cross. He was set apart. He was different. But he was set apart for a mission. And he goes and he makes the sacrifice on the cross. He goes and completes and fulfills his mission. Jesus dies for us doing what we cannot do so that through him we can live. And now he's saying, look, as believers, you need to be sanctified and set apart as well. And it is because that he did this. Right? Think about this. One of the things that one of the in the Old Testament, the priests are sanctified, they're set apart. Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest. So Jesus, as our great high priest, was set apart for the service of God, and his specific service was to make one sacrifice for us. 
And when he is sanctified, then we can now be sanctified. We can have a new life, a new holiness, a new knowledge, a new identification, a new passion, a new mission, a new unity. And it all comes because Jesus sanctified himself. Here at the end of Jesus' ministry, he knows what awaits his disciples. He knows what awaits us. He knows that we need to be equipped to carry on the mission. And so Jesus prays for them and demonstrating by praying for them what we need as well today. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus cared so much that he prays for his disciples? He prays for me, prays for you, so that we can fulfill or carry on the mission that he inaugurated. That's what he is calling us to. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.